the Sunday Sermons Podcast. Today we're continuing our journey that we're calling Peak. We're looking at stories in the Bible that happen on mountains, not because mountains are just cool, but because they, each one of these represents something major. We spent a lot of time with a guy named Moses, a lot of, guy with a guy, a lot of time with a guy named Elijah for good reason. They represent two major ways that God interacted with people over the years up until Jesus. In the New Testament, it's called the law and the prophets. Moses, of course, represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. But all of that stuff, all that deep stuff, and if you miss some of it, I hope you go back because it's rich and every part of it is important. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It's important we know what he is fulfilling. But it all pointed to Jesus. The law and the prophets pointed forward to the Messiah. And thank God he did come. So today we're going to climb with Jesus and a couple of his disciples, three of them, up to a mountain called Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is mentioned by name in the Old Testament several times. Uh, There's a story in Judges 4 that's especially cool. It just doesn't have anything to do with the images and symbols that we're talking about today. So we're not going to tell that story. But it's a Monadnock mountain, which means it's kind of like if you put a big bread bowl upside down on a flat table. Okay, it's just like flat, flat, flat mountain. And it's really round on the top. That's what it looks like. That's the actual mountain. And it's not actually named in the passage in the New Testament, but it's pretty clear from the geography and also tradition and history and a bunch of other ways we know that is the mountain. So we're going to go up there. Speaking of how we know stuff, I'd love to invite anybody who's even remotely curious to come back to a one-night deep dive with me tonight on how we know that we can trust the New New Testament, how we know from all the ways we know, but also especially how the four Gospels harmonize. If you read the passages, and I always hope you do, I hope you go back after the message and you as a, a person and you in groups or families, somehow you go back and let the Holy Spirit give you another chance at all of these ideas and all these scriptures. But you'll notice that the stories are told just a little bit differently. That throws a lot of people. If you've got questions about that, I'd love to help you understand that a little bit better and let you know what questions still remain as well. But that's tonight. I couldn't figure out any way to get all of that into this sermon. So I'm just offering it tonight as a deeper dive and we're gonna keep on, okay? Just let me just say this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three tell this story and they all include it with several other stories and big deals that happen all in the same order. It doesn't happen a whole lot. And when that happens, it's very significant. There's a reason that that moment in time is remembered so precisely, even though they were all writing to different audiences for different reasons. I'm just going to let that hang and we're going to keep going. You ready? Okay. So the climb to Mount Tabor begins in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus and his disciples uh, are starting the final push toward Jerusalem. They're on their way for the last time to celebrate the Passover and all of that stuff together in Jerusalem. And he also knows that he's on his way to the cross and the tomb and everything beyond that. 
They haven't picked up on that yet. But the first place he takes them along the way is a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, I know you've heard of this before. These are very significant moments. But Caesarea Philippi was, I don't know if they use this phrase anymore, but when I was a kid, they'd call certain places a hotbed of sin and corruption. Has anybody ever heard that? Okay. Caesarea Philippi was a hotbed of sin and corruption. And one of the worst places and some of the worst stuff that happens was this massive cave. You could still go visit there today. And they called it the Gates of Hades. And they really believed that that was the opening to the underworld, the opening to where the um, dead would go. And they did all kinds of really terrible things there. Well, that's exactly where Jesus took his disciples and had this big conversation with them and said, so who who do people say that I am? Does this sound familiar? And they had all these answers. And then he says the most important question. So who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and he says, I believe that you're the Messiah. I believe you're the one that the law and the prophets have been pointing to all along. I believe you're the savior. You're the one. And Jesus gets so excited. And he says, hey, you know what? My father in heaven revealed that to you. There's a lot of other deep stuff in there that he says too. But then he says, this very, very clear thing. And from this point on, he says it over and over again. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus loved word pictures and images and parables and symbols This was just straight up telling him exactly what was going to happen, okay? And he starts to do this over and over. And you can tell that they got it. You can tell that they understood it because Peter's immediate response, just Peter's usually the one that immediately responds, but his response is, no, that's not going to happen. We'll save you. We'll keep you from having to die. And then Jesus, of course, says, get behind me, Satan, That's nightmarish. Can you imagine Jesus Christ looking at you and saying, get behind me, Satan? (laughs) But then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. You don't have to squint very hard to see that he's fulfilling the Old Testament law at this moment. See, the law told them that there was no possible way that you could ever be as perfect as you need to be, as perfect as God demands you to be. God says, here's all the things you're supposed to do, here's all the things you're not supposed to do, and on our own we can't. And the wages of sin is? And so that means we all owe God our life. We all owe a debt that we can't pay. But Jesus is turning that around. He's flipping that script. He's taking it to the next day. He goes, you know what? God doesn't want you dead. God wants you fully alive. God doesn't want you to get killed for your sins. I'm gonna do that for you. So that every single day you realize this is not my life anymore. I'm going to live it to the full for Jesus. 
And he's starting to cast this vision that gets clearer and clearer as it goes. Paul describes it like this in Romans 3. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. By the way, propitiation, I don't think anybody uses that word outside of church anymore, but it means a covering. Here's our sin and Jesus' blood covers it. So God just sees the blood. He doesn't see the sin. John, one of the three that went up on Mount Tabor with Jesus in this story today, he later wrote this. This is the message that we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Notice the difference here. What's the same is God actually expects us to do the stuff he told us to do and not do the stuff he said not to do. Do you see that? Walking in the light is the same thing. The difference is instead of just covering our sin, he's cleansing us from our sin. It's kind of like, how many have ever, any parents out there or grandparents, how, how many have ever told somebody, you got to clean that room? Has this ever happened? Okay. And then how many times, you don't have to even raise your hand, but I just know this happens, okay? You go in there and it looks pretty good, but you know good and all that you don't want to open the closet door, (laughs) right? You know that what happened is everything just got shoved in there. And once it's somehow shut, the rest of the room looks pretty good, but you know that's a disaster, okay? What Jesus does is he actually helps us become the kind of people, you know those closet organizer people and they come in, hey, it's just joy and all that stuff. He turns us into that where we actually, we're clean from the inside out. There's no, no bunch of stuff stuffed somewhere. It's, he makes us different. Hallelujah, right? And that's the difference. That's how Jesus fulfills the law. He actually makes it possible for us to actually become like that. So, so much of the Old Testament, you have these laws and people either trying to follow them or just not even trying at all. And then you also have these prophets, these people that God sends to give specific messages to his people. And he warns them. And he, uh, but if you read through the prophets, beginning in the book of Isaiah, all the way to the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, You see snippets of stories and some really cool stuff like that, but there's also this vivid, very emotional, very relational poetry. There's all these beautiful images of God as a mother eagle teaching its young to fly and God as a jilted lover, brokenhearted and yet inviting his his bride to come back. There's all these vivid images and all these ideas. And you, you start to get the idea, wait a second, God's not just somebody who likes to write lists and stick them on the wall and hope people follow the right one. 
He's, he cares. He's a person. He's a, he's a, a real God. He's not just an idea. He's not just morals. He's, he's real. He feels. It hurts him when we sin. He's angry when we choose other things instead of him. He's hurt, and yet he's forgiving, and he's loving, and he will sacrifice himself to give us chance after chance because he genuinely loves us with passion we can't even imagine. And the prophets tell us all of that with these beautiful pictures and poetry and just quoting God and dreams and visions. But Jesus fulfills it because he doesn't just tell us that God wants to be with us. He makes it possible for God to be in us. Romans 8 says it like this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's not just somebody that cares about us, that wants to know us, that wants us to interact. He wants to actually be in us and work through us and work among us as each one of us who has his spirit in us team up and play the parts that he's given each one of us and the gifting that his spirit has given each one of us. And we put all that together. We experience what he had in mind all along. Jesus makes that possible. John talks about this idea in 1 John 2 when he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in it. But whoever keeps his word, and that's not saying like you keep your word like you made a promise. That's also many times in the Bible that we have to keep our word. But what he's saying here is whoever actually lives out the word of God. Does that make sense? Okay. In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. And by this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, how we live is going to start looking like Jesus. When we start to see Jesus as who he really is, when we start to capture in our lives, we get it how he fulfilled the law and the prophets and became the Messiah and all of that, that means we become different. We change. We start to look and smell and feel like Jesus to the people around us. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So here we go, back to the story. We're heading up to Mount Tabor. Jesus just takes three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. There was always that inner core, and it never really explains it why. I've got some theories, I've got some ideas, but today let's just, let's just say that's a fact. Here's another couple of facts. The last time we see Moses in the Old Testament, he's on Mount Nebo. Remember that a couple weeks ago? And I told you there's a beautiful view of a mountain called Mount Tabor from the top of Mount Nebo. 
couple weeks ago, we had a story about Elijah, several of them. And one, a lot of them were on top of a big mountain called Mount Carmel, where he has this showdown with the prophets of Baal and where he sits to pray for the rain to finally come. And I say, hey, that's got a very good view of a mountain called Mount Tabor. Well, keep reading. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. I, I, I'm not sure how we could have even the equivalent of what this must have meant to them. Uh, these are because these two men represented the entire law and all the prophets in so many ways. This was like meeting all the Bible heroes at once, which we'll get to do someday in heaven. You know what I'm saying? That's going to be great. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to having some time and asking a few questions and just learning and getting to know some of these people. I think it's going to be great. But this was just unheard of to them. And also here's Jesus that they've been hanging out with now for quite some time. It's almost the end of the three-year period here. It's been a while. And yet they're seeing him in a a way they'd never even imagined they would see him. In his fully glorified form. And here he is talking to Elijah and Moses like they're buddies. And Elijah and Moses are actually in awe of Jesus. They're freaking out. I don't know if you've ever got to meet one of your heroes or somebody famous or whatever else and been disoriented. Anybody? Okay. I guess I'm the only one, but I'll share my story. One of my biggest heroes back in the day, I've said it many times, was Rich Mullins. I really, really looked up to him in so many ways. One of the things I loved about him was he was not a celebrity. He really just almost flat out refused to put himself on another level to try to be this extra kind of whatever. He was very accessible. He would often just stand outside of the venues that he was about to play at, even at the peak of his career, and just hang out and talk to people. And I wanted to get to know him. I wanted to, to, to not only just tell him, hey, thank you for what your songs and your teaching has meant to me, but I love that. And I'm trying to emulate that example every day. At that moment, I, all I wanted in life was to be a Christian musician, and I wanted to be just like Rich Mullins. This guy was a huge hero to me. Well, I took the youth group to go see a Rich Mullins concert. It's about to start, and somebody had forgot their purse, and they were really upset about it. And I knew I couldn't just send them out there by themselves, so I said, look, I'll go get it for you. You guys all stay here with the other sponsors. I'll get the purse. So I busted out of there. I, I'm, I'm flying. And I'm just going, literally sprinting, jump in there, figure out which one of the purses it was and grab it, come sprinting back and almost literally ran right into Rich Mullins. Like metaphorically, I ran into him. I almost literally ran into him. And <clears throat> I'm not a person who gets starstruck easy, but it was just such a weird, bizarre thing. And I just go, <sighs> holding a purse, mind you. <laughs> I go, you're Rich Mullins. <laughs> and he says, yep. And I said, I love your music. <laughs> and he said, thanks. 
I just left. That was it. That was the whole conversation. That was me getting to meet my hero. That was my big conversation. I blew it completely. So I have a lot of grace for Peter here. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Actually, again, to be fair to Peter, this wasn't such a ridiculous idea. It's not like he was saying, "Uh, you guys want to build a fort? (laughs) See, Jesus and his disciples lived a lot of time homeless. They, They would stay in people's homes, but they spent a lot of time actually living in shelters. Maybe he thought, hey, maybe we're going to spend the night up here with Moses and Elijah. They, they probably don't want to be in my shelter. They probably want their own. I'll build it. Maybe it was that. They also had uh, every single year, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and tabernacles and shelters, it's all the same word. But they, they would live in tents temporarily so they could do that. And then there's the actual tabernacle and everything that that represented. And, and I don't think they, they had any idea at this point, but everything in the tabernacle was pointing to Jesus. It was a shelter that to walk through it, the, the first thing was an altar that was about sin, to pay for sin. You can't even go any further in unless your sin got paid for Kind of like that. And then the very next thing you'd come to was a big basin of water. And the priests, as they would approach the holy place inside of there, that extra shelter in there, they'd have to dip their hands in there. And this went on all day long. And it was gross after the first time because they're butchering and burning animals all day long. But symbolically, they would dip their hands in and walk on in and God would declare them clean. It's kind of like that. Is this making sense so far? And then inside of the holy place, you've got a bread, bread where of fellowship meals, broken bread, and you've got candles that represent light. You've got an incense altar that represent prayer. And if you looked at it from the air, there's a straight line going this way and another line going this way, kind of like that. And then on the very, very inside of it, was the holiest place, the holy of holies, the most holy place. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was and where the very presence of God was. And in between all of that and that final spot was this curtain. And there's all this mystery. I want you to hold on to that curtain imagery because in a couple more weeks, as we finish up the last couple of these mountains, it's going to get ripped by God miraculously. And I want you to understand how important that is. But at this moment, what's happening on top of Mount Tabor is it's getting pulled back just a little bit. They're seeing Jesus in his actual glorified form. And they're seeing some people that in heaven get to hang out with him. They don't see the whole picture. They don't get to, but they see so much more than the rest. So let's give him just a little bit of grace, but let's also keep going. This part's actually kind of funny. God interrupts Peter. It says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, I don't know about you guys. I don't know every single person's story, but I can look back on my life and, There's so many times where I've kind of felt God's presence or felt it pretty intensely. There's only a couple of times when it was like, 
There's no doubt. Like, it's just so intense. And I hope you have some of those, and I hope you have tons and tons of the ones that are you, you do sense. I hope you're sensing his presence today. We've been praying about that so much that you're hearing not just my words, but you're hearing in your own heart and soul from the Holy Spirit himself. And I hope and I trust and I pray that that's happening this morning. But whenever we have that intense meeting with God, whether it's just a moment when you're on your knees all alone or it's at camp or TCTC or if it's here at church or a special worship service like the one we'll have next Sunday night right after the big meal, I don't know where it is that God meets you the most, but you just want to stay there, don't you? You don't want to leave. It's kind of like if you go on a really great vacation. It's not that you hate the rest of your life, but you just had so many days in a row with your family and just enjoying being together and you don't want it to end. Chris Renzema talks about this moment on the mountain. He says, like Peter on the hill, I want to make this my place. But like Peter on the hill before your transfigured face, I will go where you go. I will stay where you stay. And I got to remind you one more time, the whole point of these mountains throughout the story and in our lives, these mountaintop experiences are about the whole journey itself. God gives us these moments, the struggle of the climb, the beautiful view at the top, the revelation, the clarity, the whole thing, the moments together, the hard climb back down and all of that so that the, the rest of the journey is different. Things have changed. We've seen something we've never seen before and it changes how we see everything else. He doesn't just want us to stay there. He wants us to experience those things, but he doesn't want us to just stay there. He wants those things to stay with us. He wants those experiences and those insights and those moments to stay with us and fuel us on the other side. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone that they had seen, what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. I used to give Peter so much grief about this one. It's like, what do you mean? But, but to be fair, Jesus was very mysterious a lot. Even, even earlier when Peter made the good confession, Jesus is talking about, I'm going to build my church. They'd never heard that term yet. I'm going to build my church on the foundation of what you just said. And I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And he was always talking about eat my flesh and drink my blood or you don't have any life in you. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. You know what I'm talking about? There's a lot of stuff. There was a lot of, a lot, a lot of mysterious words in there. And yet this is something he's being so literal about and they're missing the point. I just think that's so sad and it just reminds me of myself and I hope it's not gonna be all of us today when we leave. They have this mountaintop experience and as they're leaving, instead of going, wow, did you know Jesus was like like straight up God? Can you believe we just saw Moses and Elijah for crying out loud? They're, They're going, what do you think he means by rising from the dead? I hope you have more transformative conversations in the parking lot and on your way home today. I hope as you revisit these scriptures that you're you're thinking about more than 
how much you like or don't like the way that I speak or something like that. I hope you're thinking about what we've encountered in these ideas today, what we've seen in this story, what we've seen in this scripture. I hope something is changing because that's the point every time. Peter later wrote about this experience. He said, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Again, tonight we'll talk a lot more about whoever wants to come back. We'll talk more about how we can trust the scriptures, but I'll give you one more clue. One of the reasons is how much of their failures are in here. If I were creating a story trying to get you to believe in it, and I was a character in this story, I'm not going to put in there that I had just seen Jesus and Elijah and Moses, and on the way down, I'm talking about, so what do you think he meant by this? I'm not going to put in the part where I denied him. I'm not going to put in the part where I said, where he called me Satan. Do you know know what I'm saying? One of the ways that we can trust the scriptures is because they're just honest. They just lay it out. This is it. These are real people just like us who got to see Jesus in the flesh. It's one of the ways we can trust the scriptures. And he's saying, we did not put this together. We did not concoct this. This is what we saw. It's what we experienced. They knew Jesus in real life. But one more time, let's, let's walk through these law and the prophets. And here at the end, let's see if we can make this relevant. Again, what we want, what God wants, what I'm hoping and praying for is that we're all changed. So one more time, the law gives us a perspective of God's holiness and his righteousness, what he expects and what he really requires us not to do. Jesus fulfills that by making it possible for us to walk in the light. And he makes up the difference where we fail with his blood. The prophets told us, who cast this vision that God actually wanted to know us, to interact with us like a, a mother burden its young or a mother and her child or a father training up his kids and, and divi- discipling them or two lovers or whatever. He, he, he's, he used all these to let us know, I actually want to know you. Jesus actually made that possible. And not just that we kind of know him, that he actually lives in us and works in us and through us. And when we see Jesus as he really is, when we see that he is the Messiah, the son of God, he is the one that God sent. He's the only one that could do these things for us. That's when our spirits respond in awe. That's what real worship is. That's where we realize the only only possible response that makes any kind of sanity at all is to fall on our faces in front of him. And this is at the heart of what we do here at Morrison Hill Christian Church. I'd like you to read this off the screen with me. This is kind of our vision statement, our motto. We call it different things, but this is what we do. Everything we do here, this is, this is our best attempt to do these things. Would you say this out loud? We help you become a fully devoted and fully equipped follower of Jesus Christ. It's also worded slightly, slightly differently. We'll say, we'll say it like we help people, we'll we'll say it a different way, but the ideas are the same. Let me walk 
you through it just really quickly. And I, I hope that this isn't the first time you've heard it, but I hope you catch something new in this. I hope you figure out a way that you can join us in this quest. You can find a part that you play in this bigger than any part you're already playing. We help people. We means all of us. We help people. People like that aren't believers yet because Jesus told us to go into all the worlds and make disciples of all nations. We help people become followers of Jesus. And we help people become devoted to actually walk in the light, to actually live out the teachings of Jesus. Like in the Great Commission where he said, teach them to obey all the things that I've commanded. Fully equipped followers of Jesus Christ. In the Great Commission, he said, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that we we get when we give our lives to Christ, we repent, we're baptized and all of that. The spirit comes to live inside of us. And then we also have his word and then we have fellowship. We try to give that to everybody. So you are fully equipped followers of Jesus Christ. And all of that, the most important thing in the whole thing is it's Jesus Christ. It's not Morrison Hill. It's certainly not John Pryor. It's Jesus. The Messiah, the King. This is what we're trying to do. And just to be as practical as possible, one more time, you've heard it several times, even in the last couple weeks, but I encourage you to use the spiritual disciplines to pursue Jesus. What he's given us every single day, our Mount Tabor right now is when we encounter him through prayer. You can see Jesus as he is, it really is through prayer. You can see Jesus as he is through his word. That's why we study the Bible alone and in small groups and as a big group. You can see him in fellowship because you see him changing other people as well as you. And you see the harmony in that. He's changing us all in different ways. But somehow we're all kind of going the same direction. How does that happen? There must be Jesus. Squint just a little bit, you see him. We see him in communion. We see him in fasting and silence and solitude, simplicity, stewardships, service, meditation, all of the ways that we interact with God. This is no longer the law. We don't come to church and join small groups and take communion and all those things because we, we got to where God's gonna smite us. Jesus took care of the smite issue. We do this because he's inviting us up on Mount Tabor to see him as he really is. And we can do that every day. And we can do that every week. We can do that every month. It's possible. We just have to do it. And my challenge, my dream, my prayer to you is do it. Fasting doesn't work for you, don't fast. I'm okay with that. God's not gonna send you to hell. Jesus took care of the balance. But read your Bible or pray or do you know what I'm saying? Use the gifts he's given you, interact with him, figure it out because you're gonna see Jesus as he really is. And when we see Jesus as he really is, it changes us. I don't know what you have to do this morning to get just a little bit closer to Jesus. Another step, if, if there's something that you've been holding back, if there's something he's telling you to do or stop doing, If you want to make that public, come down here right now. That might be giving your life to Jesus. It might be joining our church officially, or it could be a lot of things. But come down. If you want to pray down here, somebody will see you and come pray with you. Just if that's, I'd love that. 
If you need private prayer, you can go to the back. If you want to stay where you are, that's fine. But please don't do this. Please don't just check your phone or your watch or whatever else and just tune out at this moment. Come to the mountain of the Lord with us as we've seen this lesson. Look at the face of Jesus and respond in a way that's going to actually change 